Uh, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2 for our time of study in, in the Word this morning. If you want to give a title uh, to the message, it would be The Church, a Distinct Community. The Church, a Distinct Community. Tonight is our annual meeting, and uh, what we're going to do this morning is kind of start the annual meeting by uh, just going over some things that are high priorities to us here at uh, Cornerstone. And if you're visiting with us or you're new to Cornerstone, this will give you an idea of what we're passionate about. This is, in a sense, the Cornerstone formula. This is what makes us uh, Cornerstone. So we're calling this the church a distinct uh, community. Distinctiveness is important. We live in a culture that doesn't like distinctions, but distinctions are absolutely important and vital Uh, to life. I don't know if you've ever thought about how important distinctiveness and making distinctions is. If you got a bunch of people sitting at an intersection and there, imagine that there were no distinction between a red light and a green light. We'd be in a whole world of hurt. Uh, Distinctiveness is very important. It is vital to life. The whole reason that when we show up together on Sunday that we even recognize each other is because there's a distinctiveness about each uh, person. Uh, When I look at uh, uh, someone, for example, Phil Rosentrader, I can call him by his name. I know exactly who he is for one reason only, and that is because Phil Rosentrader looks different than any other person I have ever known in my life. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a negative thing. If there were five people that looked exactly like him, I wouldn't know which one was Phil uh, Rosentrader. And when you think about it from that standpoint, uh, you, you not only understand how important making distinctions are, but when distinctions get fuzzed out... Uh, we we fail to recognize what we should recognize and identify what we should identify. And when uh, our own distinctiveness gets fuzzed out, then we fail to be recognized for who uh, we are. And when someone does not recognize our distinctiveness and what makes us us, uh, we're not happy uh, about that. Uh, I'll never forget when I was about maybe, I don't know, 12 years of age before uh, my voice changed to that of a man. Um, I, the phone rang one afternoon and I answered the phone. And My mom's name is Janie, by the way. And I answered the phone and said, hello. And there was a woman on the other end of the line who said, Janie? And that's probably the worst thing that you could say to... Uh, to a boy my age. And so after that, um, I, whenever I answered the phone, even before my voice changed officially, I was like, hello. I would go as deep as I could so that everyone know that it was me and not uh, my mom. I did a funeral uh, somewhat recently and an elderly woman came up after I had preached at the funeral and she said, you 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 look like someone that I see on TV. 
and you preach like him. And I was like, who is that? I was afraid to ask. But she was searching it out and she says, Joel Olstein. Uh, and you preach like him too, she said. And, which I wasn't real happy about that. Uh, I was surprised at that because I had actually preached the gospel in that message. And it talked about, you know, sin and the need for salvation and the need to be delivered from God's wrath. I think all of us at some point or another uh, have been mistaken for someone else or something distinctive about you was not duly observed. Those things that make you, you. Those things that make us as a church, us. The things that make Cornerstone, Cornerstone. The things that make the church of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ as opposed to the world. We as a church uh, should be a church that that is recognizably different from the world. All churches should make it their ambition to be recognizably different from the world. And yet many churches nowadays are studying the world in order to be as much like the world as they possibly can. And the upshot is that such churches end up losing the things that make them the church. And I'll never forget reading a number of years ago in the book Psychological Seduction from William Kirk Kilpatrick when he said something to the effect that most people who are coming into the church are coming into the church because they're burned out on what the world has had to offer them. And we render them a great disservice when all we do is give them back more of the same. We don't, as a church, want to be distinct and different from the world because we hate the world and the people in it. In fact, the most loving thing we can do for the world is be distinct to give them something different. And that's what the church ought to be. The church is the harbinger of the age to come, and we ought to reflect that age more than our modern age. As one writer has said, we, the church, are the first ray of light breaking into the darkness of a disordered and fractured universe. We are the first sign of a new dawn. The church is an outpost of heaven. And we ought to reflect the atmosphere and the ways of heaven and our God in a way that is noticeably different from the world. Hopefully today we'll cover uh, ten key elements of God's vision for Cornerstone as God envisions for us as the church uh, things that make us different, that make us unique from the world And these are things that maybe if you've been here at Cornerstone, you would have already observed. This is definitely what Cornerstone is all about. But as I was putting these thoughts together, I was pained by the realization that in all of these, some more than others, we've got a long way to go. And so these things represent what we want to be distinctive about us, areas that we want to excel still more if we're doing a pretty good job, and areas that we want to become good at if it could be rightly observed that we're not doing a good job in some of these areas. But this is the mind of God, I think. This is God's vision for Cornerstone. Uh, and for, I, in, a, in a sense, we could say all churches 
And number one is scripture proclamation. The proclamation of the written word of, of God. This is foundational to who we are as a church. Anything that we are, become, or do needs to be guided by the teaching of the scriptures and shaped by the scriptures themselves. Why are we passionate about the Word of God here at Cornerstone? Well, one reason is stated in 2 Timothy 3. In fact, several are stated here. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, the sacred writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads into salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The scriptures point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ by which we are saved. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. It tells us what we need to know. Reproof, it tells us what's wrong with us. And you might say, well, I don't know if I like being told what's wrong with me. No, you do like that. When you go to the doctor, you want the doctor to tell you what is wrong with you. If you know that something is wrong, you want the doctor to give you a diagnosis of that. The scripture does that. Uh, And the scripture is not only profitable for reproof, but also correction. That's the cool thing. It tells us what's wrong with us, and it actually corrects. It has the power to correct those things that are broken and wrong with us. And it's profitable for training in righteousness in order that, Paul says, the man of God may be literally equipped, comma, totally equipped for every good work. There is no good work that God wants us as a church to engage in that his word is not fully sufficient to equip us for. God's word is sufficient to make us Christ-like so that we can then bring our Christ-like selves into everything that we do in every arena of life. And so we're not surprised then that just a couple verses later in chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. It seems weird that Paul would tell Timothy, preach the word, and then the reason that he gives is because a time is coming when people aren't going to want to hear the word. Part of what he's saying by that is that, Timothy, if you preach the word faithfully, and if that's what your church that you pastor is all about, then such preaching of the scriptures will attract the right people. And it will chase away the non-elect. It will chase away most of the wolves. Unfortunately, not all the wolves are chased away. But one of the ways to guarantee that the cornerstone body is what it should be is preach the word. Just preach the scriptures. Some will come through cornerstone and sit in a service or two and say, this is not what I want to hear. And they go elsewhere to get their ears tickled. And we don't realize it, but a thousand giants are being slain and a whole host of problems we're being protected from by just creating an environment where the Word of God is studied 
and proclaimed and preached. The Word of God has power. It is the power of God. It's quick and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it can pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We are a people of the book. We are a people of the Word. This is how people get saved. Jesus says, whoever hears my words and believes on Him who sent me has eternal life. You know those who have eternal life by how they respond to the words of Jesus. And yet, we live in a day where there's a movement away from the spoken word. It's kind of outdated now to have a ministry that, uh, in some circles it's outdated, to have a ministry that is word-centered. Many despair that we can even understand this book in the first place. And then others would piously say, well, you can't. You can't take the greatness of God and condense that into propositional statements using words. And so they're moving away from that. David Platt, in his book Radical Together, tells about um, an occasion where he was listening to a church innovator who was talking about this very phenomenon and how that, that nowadays, you know, the spoken word, uh, the preached word, it's just not the way to reach people anymore. Uh, and there's newer ways, more creative ways, innovative ways of reaching people. And this church innovator said to his audience, he said, if you want to get your point across to people today, you must make your point musically. So it's music. And we're not at all against using music to make a point, but what we would say in defense of the spoken word is that God uses the spoken word as much today as he ever did. And yet some are moving away from that. David Platt's response to hearing this innovator say this is as follows. He says, I'm suspicious. After thousands of years of effective communication through the spoken word, I don't think we've quite reached the zenith that this man surmised. In addition, I found it ironic that he chose to speak, not sing his lecture. That's a valid point. Um, so at Cornerstone, we want to be all about the scriptures and proclaiming God's word when it encourages us, when it blesses us, when it shatters us, when it rebukes us, when it tells us the opposite of what we want to hear. We want to preach the word and allow it to mold and shape us into the church that God wants us to be. There's a second aspect of God's vision for Cornerstone. If, if God were here and he were to tell us, here's what I want you to be all about, I am confident that here's one of the things that he would say, and that is gospel feasting. Gospel feasting. He wants Cornerstone to be a culture where we're fanatical about the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're consuming, we're feasting, we're gorging on the gospel. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone who is believing. It's the power of God to get people saved. It's the power of God in an ongoing way for those who've already been saved to take them deeper and deeper into the whole realm of salvation. Peter in 1 Peter 1 and 2 is talking to the Christians there 
And, and he's telling them that you guys were born again by the seed of the word of God. Clearly talking about the gospel. In fact, he makes it abundantly clear at the end of chapter 1 by saying, what word am I talking about by which you were born again? He says, this is the word literally which was gospeled to you. It's the gospel word that I am speaking about by which you were born again. But then notice what he tells the believers to do. He doesn't say, now that you've been saved by the gospel word, set that aside and move on to something else. He doesn't say that. Look what he says in the very next verse. He says, therefore, and then verse 2, like newborn babies, be continuously craving or longing for the pure milk of the word. In the context, what is the word? It's the word that was gospel to them. It is the gospel word. He is commanding them like newborn babies to be continuously craving the pure milk of the gospel. What he's saying to them is that the gospel is not just to be the means by which you were converted. It is to be your daily food that you are craving. This word longing or craving speaks of a life dominating craving. We see people in our culture today that not only have desires, but life-dominating desires. All of their life revolves around certain things that they crave so passionately or are addicted to. And Peter is telling us to be addicted to the gospel, to have a life-dominating craving for the gospel of Jesus Christ, partaking of Him and all of the blessings, obsessing on the truths and the grace and the love and the power of the gospel. Look what he says. Be continuously longing for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may be continuously growing into salvation. Look what he's saying there. It is by it, by it, by the gospel as we partake of it that we find ourselves growing into the realm of salvation and all that it entails. And ultimately, as we are partaking of the gospel, we are tasting the deliciousness of the Lord. We're partaking of Jesus when we partake of the gospel. And if we as a community are full of individuals that keep on coming to Jesus and feasting on the gospel word and all that is communicated in it of the heart of God for us, and all that is true of us now that we are believers in Jesus, we will grow individually and as a church. And look what happens. He goes on to say this in verse 4. And continuously coming to Him as to a living stone. He changes the metaphor now to rather than drinking milk uh, of a stone, a rock, from which water is flowing. Jesus is that rock. He is that stone from which life and water flows. And as we keep on coming to Him and tasting the deliciousness of the Lord, look what He says, continuously coming to Him as to a living stone, here's what you will notice starts to happen. You are being built up as a spiritual house, as a community, as a single community for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is how we ensure that we become the church God wants us to become. A serving, 
church and a worshiping church. And that is by not only basing everything upon the study and the proclamation of the scriptures, but also by feasting upon that thing that the scriptures point us to. And that is Jesus and the message of the gospel of salvation through him. Here at Cornerstone, I believe that that we've grown a lot over the last decade, where there's a culture uh, where we love the gospel. We love talking about the, the gospel. And we love feasting upon the gospel. We can't get enough of that. Several years ago, we had a man from Biola University come and speak, an apologetics professor come and speak here at Cornerstone. And he, he was uh, sat through the first service. And just from listening to the songs, that's all that he heard. By the greeting time, he looked at me and he had this, this look of like, I, and he said to me, he says, I know what you guys are all about here. And I said, what? He said, it's the gospel. Like he was amazed. Like this is somewhat unique in his experience. And after the second service, as I was saying goodbye to him, he, he grabbed my arm and he said, keep your focus right here on the gospel. And he says, I promise you, this campus will not be big enough to contain what God will do if you keep your focus right here. Well, whether we outgrow this campus or not, we want to continue to feast on the gospel. That's a part of what makes the church unique. The world is dominated by other life-dominating cravings, We have a life-dominating craving for Jesus Christ and the message of salvation through Him. That's how we experience the power of God. There's a third key element of God's vision for Cornerstone, and that is gospel impartation. Gospel impartation. We're not just to be a culture that is feasting on the gospel and, and taking it in, but a community of people that is all about passing it on to other people. In fact, um, if you just like write a G on your notes, I thought about making a slide like this, a G that represents the gospel, and then there's a tag on that G that identifies who it belongs to, and you can just write the, the word world there. Like as we're feasting and gorging on the gospel and we're being blessed by it, uh, the very gospel that we are being blessed by and being transformed by, we begin to notice, wait a minute, this is for the world. This is a message for the world. It is not just for us. This message is not to stop with me. Thank you, God, and I receive this gospel, but I observe on this gospel that it is a message for the world to those of every tribe and tongue and nation. So any, any church that is truly feasting on the gospel and passionate about the gospel will do more than feast. They will want to see to it that the gospel passes from them to others. We at Cornerstone want to grow as a community that is imparting the gospel to others. And when we think about impartation. There's a reason I said impartation rather than uh, proclamation. Because there is more way there are more ways to impart the gospel to others than just through the words that we speak. 
Look what Paul says to the Thessalonians. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. So the gospel came to you, and you guys recall how it didn't just come through the words that we spoke, but it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction or assurance, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What Paul is saying here is that the gospel didn't just come to you through the words we spoke. The gospel came to you in the form of the kind of men we were among you for your sake. Teaching us that we impart the gospel through our words, but also through our ways. We don't just exclaim the gospel, but we embody and exemplify the gospel. We don't just announce the gospel, we act gospel. We impart the gospel to others through the words we speak and also through who we are towards them. Paul goes on in 1 Thessalonians 2.8 saying, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Paul would say evangelism is, is not just delivering a message and throwing a message at people. Evangelism is infusing the gospel into your life and then giving your gospel-laden life away to other people. To where as you interact with them, they taste gospel. You are giving the gospel to them as you give your life away to them. Evangelism is having a fond affection for people and demonstrating that. It's allowing people into your life and allowing them to become very dear to you and then giving your life away to them, a life that is infused with the gospel. This is much more demanding than just speaking a message. Now, if that's the only opportunity that we have, then definitely we would want to speak words to somebody. But evangelism goes beyond speaking words on every occasion, and it involves giving of ourselves uh, to other people. Uh, We can call this relational or relationship evangelism, but I, uh, with one caveat... Sometimes people say, well, if you want to evangelize someone, you first need to build a relationship with them so that you can then speak the gospel to them. I would say it a little differently. I would say in moving towards a lost person and inviting them into your life and stepping into their life and building a relationship with them, you're already imparting the gospel to them. Gospel impartation already has begun. Because you have a God who through you is moving towards that person and loving that person, demonstrating care about that person. There are already aspects of gospel reality that are being imparted through the relationship you are building with that person as you move towards them. That's what Jesus did, is it not? He, he actually came to the world. He wasn't up in heaven and just spoke a message of salvation. He came himself. And he lived amongst us. 
and you read through Luke's gospel, I think there's like 14 occasions where he's sitting at someone's house at their table for a meal. That's just crazy. God, the second member of the Trinity, is in people's homes and he's eating with them. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. Building relationships and going into people's homes. And in those venues would act in certain ways that would raise questions and, and say things that, that would open people's eyes to the reality of who He is and the reality of the Gospel. He gave Himself, not just a message. And so we need to do the same. This is a challenging thing. It's something that we're trying to think through as a family, just how... Um, how we can live life more seamlessly. Um, our lives are often so compartmentalized. And it's like, all right, I'm going to do evangelism now. Uh, now I'm going to do, you know, church ministry. Uh, now I'm going to do counseling. And, uh, and then over here I'm going to do my living. And it's all these different compartments. And there's really no way when you divide everything up that you can do everything that the Scriptures would call you to do. But is there a way of living life more seamlessly, where more is happening in the normal, ordinary moments of life? One writer I was reading recently said, most gospel ministry is ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality, just in the fabric of life. The same author says this, let me read this to you, just for your Thinking, this is something I'm trying to think through. Western culture has become very compartmentalized. We divide our lives into work time, leisure time, family time, church time, and mission or outreach time. We want to spend more time in evangelism, but because this can happen only at the expense of something else, it never happens. Rethinking evangelism as relationships rather than events radically changes this. Evangelism is not an activity to be squeezed into our busy schedules. It becomes an intention that we carry out with us throughout our day. He goes on to say the same is true of church. If church and mission are redefined in relational terms, then work, leisure, and family time can all be viewed as gospel activities. Ordinary life becomes pastoral and missional if we have gospel intentionality. Watching a film with friends or looking after a burdened mother's children can simultaneously be family time, leisure, mission, and church. I would love, and I know many of you are thinking through this kind of stuff and even living this out far better than than I've attained to, and I, but I would love for this discussion to be taking place of how we can live with more intentionality and our lives can be less compartmentalized, closer to the vision of what's described here in, in this quote. Evangelism is it's literally a lifestyle. It's who we are and the way that we go about relating uh, to people in our everyday life. You, think about it, you are a person in community. Um, You may not have had much choice about some of the things, but like you are somebody's child. 
you have a mom, you have a dad, many of you have children, you have a husband, you have a wife, uh, you have other relatives that um, you have a relationship with and the family that you were born into or married into. Uh, many of you are living in, in fact, all of you are living in a neighborhood some, <clears throat> somewhere. <clears throat> so you have neighbors, you have people around you that you see on a regular basis <clears throat> and and you many of you work and so you have co-workers you have bosses you have employees all of us are in community in some way and the way that we all need to think about it is god save me with an eye towards me being a missionary inside of that community how can i live my life if if i am a missionary inside of this at least inside of this Obviously, we go beyond this uh, as we grow in the Lord and seek for opportunities to minister. But at the very least, I am a missionary inside of this circle that I find myself in. And so how can I be a disciple maker? How can I be a missionary? Every one of us needs to think through, just like any missionary going over to the Philippines... They need to have a ministry plan that they can articulate and explain to other people and say, hey, pray for me uh, as I go over there. And we pray for them and we get reports and there's setbacks and and there's positive developments and we support them in any way that we can. Imagine if every member of Cornerstone saw themselves as a missionary in that sense. And so we're all asking these questions. How, How do I live my life? What am I going to do? Um, what kind of prayer am I going to seek from those who are in, wish to support me through their prayer support? How will I be missional and intentional in the life that I lead with this gospel intentionality? This type of thing, imagine the impact of this. And it's less big event oriented, although there's nothing wrong with that. And it's just ordinary people doing ordinary things and the ordinary fabric of life, and God showing up in those places and doing great things. There's a fourth key element of, our, of God's vision for Cornerstone, and i got a feeling this is as far as we're going to get, um, and that is praying in the Spirit. <clears throat> praying in the Spirit. This is... Um, I'd say in the last year, God has taken us several strides forward in, in terms of uh, growing us into a praying community. Uh, we are called to prayer. In fact, you read 1 Timothy where Paul tells us how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And he's like, first of all, pray. And here's who to pray for. Um, and yet often prayer assumes a lower place in the way that we do life and the way that we do family and the way that we do uh, community as a church body. Paul in Ephesians 6 says, with all prayer, notice the word all, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And it's interesting what he says next, because it's easy to stop and say, okay, I need to pray for all the saints. Look what he says in the next verse. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. Kind of the gist is be praying for all the saints that utterance may be given to them 
and the opening of their mouth as they make known the mystery of the gospel. And hey, while you're praying for all of your brothers and sisters to be living this kind of lifestyle, uh, proclaiming the gospel, can you pray the same for me also? So praying in the Spirit, we've already learned the past uh, few months that praying in the Spirit is coming before God and confessing to God. We don't know how to pray as we should, but God, can you teach me through your Spirit to pray right now? I'm going to pray right now. God, can you teach me to pray? And then we seek to think His thoughts after Him and to pray as He is teaching us and leading us to pray consistently with His will consistently with His Word. But praying in the Spirit that Paul is speaking about here also involves praying for all the saints. I don't want to just pray for the missionaries overseas. I want to pray for my fellow missionaries here at Cornerstone that God will bless them in the opening of their mouth as they make known the mystery of the Gospel. It's praying with gospel intentionality for all of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's not just praying for the Sunday school teachers here on this campus, although we should do that. It's praying for the public school teacher who is surrounded by those who don't know the Lord and who is standing before a class uh, filled with individuals that don't know the Lord. That is their circle that God has placed them in to be a light, to be a missionary, and we pray for them with the same fervency that we do for a missionary overseas or a pastor of a local church. We need to be devoted to this kind of of praying. Um, You look in the book of Acts. Let me just throw this at you real quick and then we'll shut this down. Uh, In Acts 1-4, you know, there's the 120 that are gathered together and it says these all with one passion were continuously devoting themselves to prayer. And when Acts 2 opens up, we find them still gathered together doing the same thing. And guess what happens in the midst of them being assembled together doing all of this praying? The church is born. The church is born. The most amazing event in human history, the establishment of this institution of the church that is the only human institution that will endure forever and it was birthed in the context of prayer, teaching us that epic-making movements of God are birthed inside of prayer. And then as these early disciples are just going gangbusters for the Lord, there was a point where they were being threatened and, and probably intimidated a bit because this was the first time that they had experienced this. And Peter and John, they, they gather with the brothers and sisters and they have a prayer meeting and they're crying out to God and they're asking God to, to give them boldness. Uh, God, please, you are sovereign and, and we are totally under your care. Give us boldness. Help us to preach the gospel. And it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Don't just read that as dry history. Our salvation today is dependent upon the faithfulness of these first disciples. If the first wave of persecution 
and intimidation and threats being leveled at them, if they would have fallen silent at that point, we wouldn't be gathered here today. And yet, they came to God with whatever they were feeling, whatever fears they had, and said, God, show up and give us boldness. And God gave them boldness. And they were filled with the Spirit and preached the Word of God with boldness. Teaching us that epic-making boldness in God is birthed in prayer. Whatever it is that God wants us to do as a church, wherever He wants us to go, whatever it is that He wants each of us as individuals who represent the church. We are the church. Church is not something you show up at. You are the church if you're a born-again believer in Jesus. And whatever it is that God wants each of us as individuals to do as representatives of the church of Jesus Christ, whatever boldness we need for that, those things are birthed in the matrix of prayer. And so amongst many things that churches could look at and say, well, we got to do this and here's our strategy, we know this ought to rank really high and we know that because this is what God says. And that is that we need to be a church that is praying all the time, everywhere, for everyone, for all the saints, specifically praying that God would open our mouths and the mouths of our brothers and sisters here in this church and around the world to make known the glories of of the gospel. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and just ask God to to help us to cry out to Him to help us to to grow in these things as a church body. Lord, you, you, you've showered so much upon us. We are beyond blessed. And I look at what we are becoming as a church and I'm excited. I, we got a long way to go, Lord, but we're, we're way beyond where we were ten years ago, five years ago. I'm excited about what we will be five years from now. Ten years from now, a year from now. We want to grow. We want to we do church and do life and do community your way, Lord. But we just confess to you, there's so much we don't know. We want to learn. We want to grow. Could you look upon us with your grace, with your mercy, and grant to us the wisdom that, that we desperately need? Can you help us to unlearn the things we need to unlearn and to learn from you what we ought to learn? We open our hearts to you, Lord, and if there's any individual here this morning that has never opened their heart to you and just said basically the same thing to you. Lord, save me from me. Save me from my sin. Unlearn me. I want to be a disciple of this Jesus Christ who died and rose again to save me. I want to walk in this love. I pray, God, that you would draw them to yourself. Save them today. Enable them through your mercy to just cry out to you.
and call upon You as their Lord and Savior. We thank You for this opportunity to give of our offerings to You this morning. Lord, receive our offerings and do much with them for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said,